Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer a Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer a Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, another episode of Film Study with Ken McCusick. This is a fun episode. Tonight we're going to have three guests that are looking at football in a little bit of a different way than Ken and I normally look. So first got to get started with introducing Ken McCusick. Ken, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I am doing well. Uh, busy as ever, but enjoying at least a little bit of the Orioles playing well this past week to hold me up until Ravens start up in August. There you go. I'm enjoying the Caps. We uh, we went to the game last night. Not so good a result. Tomorrow, hoping for better. And, uh, boy, this certainly is looking like it could be a great year to go to the Stanley Cup, and, and the opportunity is there. Yeah, we'll see when they choke this time. <laughs> uh, but that's coming from a non-Caps fan that doesn't care. So, Ken, why don't, why don't we get started? Why don't you introduce Marcus, our first guest? Oh, fantastic. Marcus, we've, a lot of people know you as Dade on RSR, correct? Yes. Right? And cool. is a uh, longtime RSR poster, been on there at least a decade, I would think, from, from what you've done. And had a great uh, idea recently that I saw, and I thought, this is a really good new idea. Somebody approaching analysis from a different perspective. So, Marcus, why don't I let you uh, describe what you did for people, and I'll have a couple questions to prod the action here. Yeah, so uh, last season I posted a thread on RSR that uh, basically was taking the all-22 coaches film camera and taking screenshots of the passing plays on offense. Um, I took would take one screenshot of Flacco as he was winding up to throw the ball, kind of showing where he had made his decision, and then another capture 
um, at the end of the play. Sean got the play ended up. Um, that throw was very well received on the boards. And so it kind of sparked the idea I had, like, well, maybe I can do more with this. Um, the next week, uh, that was the, uh, I believe it was the Texans game I did. And then the next week against the Lions, I, instead of doing screen grabs, I used the editing software to make GIF um, images from the sideline view and the end zone view of each passing play. And that threat was also well received. And I kind of just started thinking about, like, this could be a better process to use for, a, a, you know, an amateur analyst out there and being able to break it down. Because on TV angle, you don't see the entire play. You don't, you don't see very much at all, really. And yeah, that, so, that's very true. I mean, I just want to underscore that with from Marcus. The the side view is also known as the top view, but that gives the best route depth information you can get much better than the broadcast video where, you, where a lot of the wide receivers, they run off screen at the play. And then the end zone view, of course, gives you the best side-to-side view, and it's good for offensive line development and, and whatnot. But uh, very impressed with what you did. And more than anything, Marcus, I was impressed that you just went out and did it rather than talked about doing it before you did it kind of thing and, and that's something analysts just got to start doing on their own is doing a analysis where they actually do something and b doing something that's thorough and it hits every play which is another bugaboo of mine I, i'm not really a big fan of trait-based scouting but yes. I, I really liked what you did yes and that, that that's a problem that all fans have we we watch the game on tv for those three hours and then we make very big conclusions just based on that and we're not getting all the information that way um so i just Took it upon myself as something to do, and then um, uh, thank you for reaching out to me and suggesting it's something that we can kind of spin into something bigger for all of us to use. So, yeah. So, yeah. so if I'm understanding this right, I, I thought the only use of gifts was to be snarky on Twitter, but you're taking <laughs> gifts, and how many gifts are you pulling out of one one football game? Well, the Lions game, I believe Flacco threw 37 passes, and so it was 30, it was 37 passes, but there was 39 pass plays called. So it was thirty nine gifts. So you're doing so you're doing each play, each passing play when you're yes. tracking Flacco. So you yes. get sacks, quarterback runs off the off the pass. Yes, all every, if it was a call pass play to begin with, I made a gift of it. Very good. All right, okay. and what uh, what did you learn by by seeing it from that angle and and from seeing the gift where a gift I'm assuming means you can replay it over and over and over again really right. quick uh, for one the one little play. Right. It, it, it will constantly loops. Um, I kind of had to slow down, mess with the frame rate a little bit. So it wasn't real speed, but it just it opened my eyes as to a lot of things that were going on with the Ravens office. A lot of people, some things people were saying were true. Some things weren't as true. And I think it, did, it opened up a lot of people's eyes on the boards as well. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have been criticizing Flacco as hard for this. And maybe I should be criticizing him harder on this. Maybe I should be criticizing the coaches more because this play design is complete garbage you know so it just really showed a lot more and kind of just sparked this whole thing for me okay so so what you you mentioned some flaws in the passing attack be specific with us tell us what you what you saw in terms of conclusions so while i only posted threads about those two games last season i did watch the all 22 and kind of practice with the remaining games in the season and when i came to the conclusion was that the ravens offense is archaic it is straight out of 1995 um very rarely are uh, the play designs designed to utilize player strengths where you seem to be only running plays within the first 15 yards of the line of scrimmage and defenses just sit on that. And the route combinations are not a modern NFL offense. 
And a lot of it, I think, is a, tr- a lot of the problems the Ravens have had offensively in the last couple of years can be attributed to coaching and play designs. Hmm. Okay, so was any of it, do you think, a case of Flacco not trusting the offensive line or perhaps the offensive coordinator not trusting the offensive line to design more extended plays? You mentioned 15 yards being one. Actually, the deep ball I don't think takes that long to throw because you throw it like a rainbow and it's gone in two seconds generally. But but talk about that. Yeah, I do think some of it you can attribute to Flacco not trusting the line or the, the offensive coordinator not trusting the line to hold up that long. But as you said it, you know, the average NFL play is, what, three seconds? And to throw a deep ball from a shotgun doesn't take very long at all. Yeah, they say, they say you got the ball's got to arrive at 41 to 42 or 41 to 43 yards, which, it, uh, you know, wide receiver, it'll take them, even with contact, less than five seconds to get there. Better. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and if, and if it does, then, uh, uh, you know, about three three seconds of that are spent with the ball in the air. So, uh uh, just about a two-second release on that. All right, that's terrific. Um, and defenses, in terms of sitting on these routes, what techniques did you see from them in terms of how they would take advantage of what the Ravens were doing? They're not afraid. The last couple seasons, they have not been afraid to get beat deep. Um, very rarely do the Ravens run a double move on the outside. And even when they did, no secondary that I saw even hesitated or tried to bite on it. They just they sat there. When the defense only – when the secondary only has to cover 15 yards in front of them, it makes their job very easy. Only the okay. worst secondaries in the league will, you know, not be able to do that. Okay, so your your hypothesis is that, that they knew to jump these routes and they knew to sit on the routes, but, but they, they, weren't, um, uh, they weren't falling for any of the double moves. And you have to have two routes in order to make one successful is generally the, the rule of receiving. So – uh, that's good. If you want to, if you want to successfully run a hitch, you have to be feared for the nine route or the vertical or one, right. or something. Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, How you you talk about the Ravens' offense being simple, archaic? How much do you think this is based on the players that they have? When we're seeing think, even a simple yeah, offense, offense be a struggle to run. Yeah, I think that that plays a part of it. The talent on the last couple of seasons hasn't always been there, but. I'm under belief that you still have to at least try. Um, you know, Joe Flacco is one of his – there's a lot of things people say about Joe Flacco, a lot of criticism, and I agree with a lot of them. But one of his strengths is the deep ball. And you have to put your player in a position to succeed. And when you refuse to even try to go deep, that's not, that's not helping Flacco at all. Uh, and it seems like they want to have an offense where it's kind of in the mode of the New England Patriots. You know, the last four or five seasons, Tom Brady has made a living off the short intermediate routes. Um, just because of his age and his arm strength is there as anymore. And it's, they've kind of used that as an extension of their run game. It seems the Ravens want to have the same thing, but Tom Brady is extremely accurate and he has a quick release. Flacco has average accuracy and average release. His strength is a deep ball. You have to do things to do to get the ball downfield so defenses can at least fear it, like when we had Torrey Smith. Um, well, that's a, you bring up Torrey Smith, and it's a great comparison point. I bet Josh would wanted to get to a Perriman question because he always wants to get to a Perriman question. But why why has Perriman, who has similar speed to Smith, not been able to be as successful on the deep ball? Because it really seemed like Torrey Smith was always being chased those first two or three years in the league on the deep ball and drawing a ton of pass interference calls in addition to the catches. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the benefit. Because the deep ball is such a low-risk play, is it most likely it's going to be incomplete or passing affairs, and Torrey Smith was great at that. But Perryman, I think they didn't trust his hands at all. 
Uh, Perriman has terrible hands, and that's one thing you can't teach. You can teach route running. You can't teach hands. And because of his lack of having soft hands, um, I think he lost – the coaching staff lost faith in him to even try to send him deep. All right. Great stuff, Marcus. Now, let me – you did this. Is there anything you would tell to somebody new who wants to start their own analysis project like this? I, I would tell them to – you have to do a lot of research into the different types of software you want to use. There are so many editing softwares out there and video capture uh, softwares out there. You have to do your research because you don't want to spend an arm and a leg on all these programs that are going to be very complicated <clears throat> and you don't know how to use. So you do your research to find an affordable one. There's even some good free ones out there, but really do your research on that regarding the price and the uh, technical level of skill it requires in these, some of these programs. I'm still learning it myself, um, and it's, it's a challenge, and, it's and you have to have a lot of time to devote to it. It, it was specific type of software you'd recommend for for either the gifts or for the uh, the stills. Um, the stills. I, yeah, the stills. I would recommend using. Uh, I mean, uh, Cam Cam Studio. That's a very good program. It's free and it's easy to use. As far as creating the gifts, um, I like Lightworks right now. Lightworks works pretty well. I think it could be better because it doesn't have a lot of the tools that some of the more fancy tools you can use, um, and then. Find a good website that can you can upload the gifts to for free, so you can send links to it and post it on forums. All right, outstanding, Marcus. Thanks for joining us here. We appreciate your time, and we're going to try and have you on again. No problem. Thanks for having. Thank me. you, Marcus. All right, I hung up on Marcus before we got to plug his Twitter. So before we move on, go ahead and follow Marcus on at Dade RSR so that you can keep along with all those gifts. Yeah, now, and I, out there on uh, on the RSR website, uh, great place to, to see his posts. Some of the best posts you'll find out there. Right. All right, now, Ken, I'm pretty sure that you booked our next guest just to mess with me. <laughs> so let's welcome Michael Crawford to the show to talk about everybody's favorite player, Brashard Perriman. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. Uh, thank thank you both uh, for having me on. And yes, I guess I fit the the bill as a a, a troll plant. Uh, <laughs> so I hope I hope I can live up to that a little bit. All right, outstanding. Uh, we we just started talking a, a little bit ago, Marcus, about uh, various analysis projects, and I, I noticed you were doing uh, you put a lot of gifts out online. Let's first of all tell them where they can follow you on Twitter. Okay, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Abukari. That's A B U K R K A R I. Okay, and uh, if you're a Ravens fan, you really want that. I think if you're an NFL fan, you you want to follow him. Uh, a lot of good GIF-related scouting comments he makes, and he's obviously got a very keen eye with regard to watching film. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate that. Um, this was an interesting project. Uh, looking looking at all of Perryman's routes from last year so not just receptions not just targets but actually every pass route that he ran whether he was targeted or well, not. that's because receptions would you'd finish in about two minutes <laughs> see this or is less. the problem here <laughs> or, or, or less <laughs> so pyramid ended up with how many catches for the year was it 11 10 10 catches okay <laughs> So I should know that, but but uh, but I, you do see the game by game analysis here done, and it's uh, it's quite impressive. So if I go to sheet one, for example, here I'm looking through the the, the routes, and he was in for 
It looks like 15 plays makes it make that 17 plays in this game. And you collected a lot of individual information by play. And one of the one of the points I wanted to make is that uh, for for people who are new to doing analysis, and you're obviously not new to doing scouting or doing film type analysis, but new to doing uh, numeric analysis, we'll call it. Um, it's it's always good to try and plan your information carefully and not be afraid as the process moves on to pair information or to change information that you're collecting. Can you kind of tell us how you went through that? Yeah, yeah, I am. You you hit it on the head. I'm definitely not a numbers guy. Uh, more of a visual kind of kind of learner. Uh, so this was a, a somewhat new process for me. But yeah, I initially started out trying to think about what kinds of things would be important in trying to have some context on what kind of season uh, Brashad had, obviously not a very good one, but what might be some reasons uh, for that. So I looked at a number of different things. Obviously you, you, you mentioned uh, the spreadsheets. So I won't go into all of them, but I guess if I had to sort of broad stroke categorize them, um, obviously I wanted to look at, you know, the point in the game uh, when he ran a route, wanted to look at his alignment and wanted to look at the type of route that he ran and any contact uh, from a defender. Okay, so contact for a defender is something that, that really interested me about Perriman in terms of his ability to run through that, to not be distracted by it, that it would not impact his route in some way by him trying to avoid it would be another thing. Tell us some things you saw in terms of that. Well, it was it was interesting, and um, you know, you can certainly correct me if I'm wrong because I, I don't have uh, the sheet up right in front of me right now, so I'll try to speak a little bit from memory. But um, I think on his, I think he had about 31 or 32 targets, and I think he um, experienced some sort of contact on about 14 of those. And I broke contact down into three different categories: either contact at the line of scrimmage, so envision a you know sort of a press-looking cornerback right up in the guy's mm-hmm. face, and he jams him right away you know as the ball is snapped um contact sort of in the middle of the route so now you're off the line of scrimmage into your route but maybe haven't quite reached the break point in your route and a guy kind of contacts you there and then uh target at the top of the route so that's basically at the break point right when you're 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 coming out of a break and a guy's either contacting you into that or out of the break okay so three type three points of contact and then there's there's another factor there that might figure in is is when he's trying to avoid contact. We don't have to go into it, but what were your conclusions about Perriman and his ability to work with contact? So I guess a couple of things stood out. Um, he certainly was affected by contact. Uh, he saw most of that at the line of scrimmage. So I mentioned those 14 targets with contact. I think eight of those were line of scrimmage contact. And so obviously guys that are trying to do that who want to jam you right at the line of scrimmage, they're trying to delay and disrupt the timing of the route, right? Or, or take you out of the progression altogether. And so if you're not able to avoid that, then you can essentially be taken out of the route progression and the quarterback may not even look at you. Or even if you're delayed, the quarterback may not even look at you. So I think he struggled with that because he doesn't move laterally very well. And what I mean by that is like a side-to-side, left-to-right kind of movement. Mm-hmm. If you just run directly at a guy – he's going to get his hands on you, right, and jam you. And then we're into that whole disruption thing. So in order to make a cornerback move, you have to give him some sort of deceptive lateral move, right, either a fake outside and then go in or a fake inside and go out. And you've got to sell it with your whole body. What he does oftentimes is just run at a guy and then maybe kind of chop his hands up and down, but he doesn't do anything with his head or shoulders. 
So that quarterback, that cornerback, excuse me, is never forced to move or react. He can just stand there. Uh, and so if you don't do that, you're really going to struggle. And then the second part of that is um, using your hands aggressively to actually knock the cornerback's hands off of you. And he did it at times, but it just wasn't as aggressive as I think it could be. I mean, those cornerbacks are really sort of aggressively and violently jamming you. You've got to retaliate with the same level or more of force to get their hands off you. Okay. Outstanding stuff there, uh, Michael. We're talking with Michael Crawford here, who's done a lot of analysis of Brashad Perriman's targets in 2017. So tell us a little bit more about just numerically, how did his targets uh, uh, categorized in 2017 in terms of where he lined up or, or uh, other factors, what route he's running, for example? Yeah, so two things really stood out there uh, in terms of his alignment. He lined up, um, if you want to kind of broad stroke categorize this, wide or outside the numbers. If you kind of visualize the football field and you think about the numbers on the field uh, and, and their proximity to the sideline, he lined up in that space. So outside the numbers and in between the sideline about 75% of the time. And I think that's relevant because it, it really can – give the defender an advantage, right? So think about this. There's a lot of different routes you can run as a receiver. And when I say a lot, there's about nine. I mean, we're not talking about a, an, you know, an infinite number. Mm-hmm. But if I can take that number of nine and pare it down to two, that's going to give me an advantage as a defender. And so what happens when you line up that wide? If your first move is to release outside the cornerback, so towards his outside shoulder, towards the sideline, and you don't break or change your route, at 12 to 15 yards, which is kind of a rule of thumb of where most NFL right, uh, routes break, then he knows two things. You're either running a go, a deep vertical route, or you're running a comeback. So now he's taken that possibility of nine, paired it down to two. That gives him a tactical advantage, right, just just by alignment. And then the other thing is the the route type. I think – I don't remember the the percentage number on this, so you might, might have to correct me on that. But I, I want to say it was north of 70% of his routes were go routes which by definition is a low percentage opportunity, right? Routes that are going, uh, I think pro football focus kind of categorizes them as 20 plus yards in the air or more. Sometimes they're even deeper than that, but even the best wide receivers at that. And I looked at uh, those stats from last year. So Antonio Brown, right? Ran the most of those routes and was the best at converting those routes. He only Mm -hmm. converted them at a 50% clip. Right. So even the best guys don't convert those at a high uh, a high clip because it's a lower percentage opportunity. It's a, a deeper throw, uh, deeper in terms of depth down the field and sometimes deeper in terms of distance. You know, if you're on one hash and you're throwing across the field outside the numbers to the opposite side, it's not just depth, it's distance. And so that just makes it a higher degree of difficulty uh, opportunity. All right. Great stuff there. Um, let's move on to, to the drops, which is something I'm sure Josh wants to bring up, but I beat him to it. I'm just I'm just shocked that it's only nine <laughs> percent. Well, probably because there, there was only um, you know 32 targets, right? So right, right. <laughs> Everything's a small number, sure. <laughs> yeah. So a big numbers. Who knows? Maybe he could have had even bigger drop percentage. Um, but I think one of the things that stood out to me with his drops um, and you can kind of see this on the broadcast replay angle. Sometimes hard to see on the coaches all 22 film. You really need that tight uh, replay angle hand position, right? You, when you listen to, to why receive wide receiver coaches and, and whether they're talking at a clinic or you read something that they've uh, written, they'll tell you that drops mainly stem from two things, either your eyes or your hands, right? Your eyes are not tracking the ball 
uh, properly or you don't have your hands in the right position. And so um, one of the guys that I really like to read, his name is Jay Norvell. Uh, I think he's the he's a college head coach right now, but he'd been an NFL receiver coach for a long time, worked in Indianapolis with Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne. Uh, actually, if you go back further, worked in Oakland, um, coached with Fred Belitnikoff after Belitnikoff retired and coached for the Raiders. So Belitnikoff, great receiver, right? Everybody kind of knows, historic receiver. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about backstopping the ball with your hands, right, Josh? I know you're a big baseball fan. So if you think right. about the purpose of the backstop in baseball, you know, if it gets past the catcher, it's to stop the ball from going into the stands. Well, picture your hands doing the same thing with a football, right? Uh, Belitnikoff said, if you get your hands in that backstop position, with your uh, index fingers and thumbs sort of pointing at each other. So if you look up, you kind of have this diamond in between your hands. He said, if you do that, the ball should never go through your hands. At at most, it might bounce and maybe drop straight down and give you a second opportunity to catch it. But that backstop is sort of stopping the ball from going through your hands and absorbing the momentum of the ball. But that's not what Perriman does. Perriman does this. He kind of has one hand on top, one hand on top, one hand on the bottom, and he kind of has like this a classic motion. Yeah, 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 crocodile. And so that can work. Obviously, you can you can catch the ball that way, but it becomes a timing issue. And so if that timing is even slightly off um, because your eyes aren't right or because you're being distracted by a defender or contact, then that percentage to you know opportunity to catch the ball goes way down. So to me, that's just a technique thing. And you would say, well, wait a minute, aren't these guys practicing that every day? Aren't they working on this every day? Um, another quick interesting point about that is I, I read an article from uh, Ben Bolin, I think writes for the Boston Globe and covers the uh, NFL. He said the Rams did a study last year where they looked at practices under the new CBA, and their study said that it takes three years to get the same number of practices under the new CBA that you wow. could get in one year under the old CBA. So. Wow. Think about a guy who's healthy going through all of that, and then think about Perryman, who misses a whole year, who's then injured on and off again. So he's not getting even a fraction of that work. That's that's right. And I, I mean, I'm sure the Ravens have talked to him about what you're saying about the diamond hand position, because every time you see a receiver on NFL Network, they've got their hands up in that position with the gloves from the team that, you know, is creating the perfect kind of logo situation. But, but anyway, I, I know they've talked to him about that. I'm, I'm surprised that he has not improved his catching technique, given who his pitcher is. You know, it's, he's always getting a Joe Flacco fastball. And, you know, the one thing you'll hear about receivers on the Ravens is that Joe will throw the ball remorselessly hard. This was true of Burt Jones as well, but Burt Jones just didn't throw anywhere near as hard as Joe Flacco does. And when you do that, if you have bad catching technique, it's going to magnify the problem you have, it would seem. So what what could he do during the offseason to improve his catching technique? What programs might have been available to him? Well, and and I I don't want to assume that he's not doing these things or hasn't haven't done these things. Now you can look at the results on the field and and maybe say, well, it doesn't seem like he's doing them, but I don't want to I don't want to speculate about that, but I think that um, you guys probably have both seen this on Twitter or online. There's a number of these um, sort of specialty coaches outside of the team because, you know, you're, you're limited in how much you can work with the team during the offseason um, who specialize in wide receiver fundamentals, whether it's catching or route running um, or other sort of techniques out there. And he may be going to one of these guys and working with one of these guys. You know, who knows? Again, I don't want to say he's not doing that, but I think kind of just continually con- con- continuing to work on those consistent fundamentals. And again, I really think it goes back to the amount of opportunity he's getting to work on them. Obviously in the team setting 
from what I just mentioned, he's probably not getting as many opportunities as he could have due to injury and then also performance. I mean, obviously there's a, a limited number of reps to go around and in practice. And if you've been underperforming, other guys are going to get those reps. So now you have even fewer chances in the team setting. And so that means you've got to go out and get that extra work on your own. So, um, you know, if he's doing any of that, um, I think that that could be a help, obviously. But, you know, the flip side, I'll just throw this in. There's a flip side to this. Um, I was reading an old article um, from Bill Walsh, right, the sort of father of West Coast offense, coach for the 49ers, Montana, all of that. And he talked about a guy, I can't remember the receiver's name, where he said he was a body catcher, right? He didn't catch the ball with his hands. He'd always let it get into his body and he would trap it. And he would say, but this guy never dropped the ball. So I never tried to correct him. He said, I just let him do it because he consistently mm-hmm. caught the ball, even though from a coaching standpoint, I know that was bad technique, but he never dropped the ball. So Bill Walsh's, you know, sort of uh, overarching thing was, well, look, don't get too nitpicky into how a guy catches the ball if he does it consistently. It's only a problem when he does it, right? Then you got to sort of get into it and try to figure it out. So I think Brashad falls into that latter category, right, for sure. He's not doing it consistently. And so I think that that sort of fundamental technique work uh, uh, is something he needs to continue to work on. And I, and I know I, I know I speak negatively to Brashad Perriman all the time, and it's going to be the same right now. Isn't it too late for him? I mean, to say he he's doing this crocodile method instead of the receiving method uh, or the backstop method, the backstop method – is all over the NFL. It's all over the college game. They've even changed the receiving gloves to make images when they go into that pattern because it's so well known. If a guy's his entire life has caught the ball like a crocodile and then it worked in high school, it worked in college, and it doesn't work in the NFL, he's not going to learn a new style. He was He was drafted to catch the ball the way he did his entire life, right? Can you translate that? Well, and that's a fair point. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now called Game Speed. Um, I don't have the author's name right in front of me, but it's really more about the movement sciences, right? He's one of these new sort of new age movement coaches, and he talks about motor programs, right? So just what you said, Josh, you're training certain movements, certain motor, uh, certain motor movements, right? They're being ingrained over over time because you're repeating them over and over and over again. And there's a good and a bad to that. If you're doing it correctly, then you're ingraining correct technique over and over again where it becomes muscle memory, second nature. You don't have to think about it. But if you're ingraining bad technique, can have the, the opposite effect, right? And, and you don't have to think about it and what happens in stressful situations because I'm sure in practice they're giving him um, the right technique. But in, in game situations, he's reverting back to maybe what he's done his whole life. So, I mean, it's a fair point. Can that be corrected at this point? Um, maybe not with the Ravens. Well, he, he, he may need more time. He may need another organization, clearly, to do. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, about technique in particular, because I think this is something that you do come into the game with, and it's harder to change at the NFL level, is does Perriman have a dominant shoulder where he'll catch the ball in stride over one shoulder, be it his left or his right, and then over the other shoulder he does the 180-degree twist to catch the ball? That was something Chris Carter always talked about as being something he, he – there was, and I don't remember which one it was, but there was one shoulder he liked to catch the ball over, and the other way he turned 180 degrees to catch it. Yeah, I think from what I saw, and again, we've got such a small sample size, it's hard to kind of really draw any conclusive uh, thing from it, but it looks like he, he prefers it over that, I guess, let's see if he's running vertically, sort of his left shoulder, right, looking mm-hmm. inside. Um, and, 
you know, that, that's interesting because I was reading another wide receiver coach and he talked about a drill they use called a clock drill, right, where they throw the ball to you at sort of the different points of the clock, so like 12 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you know, so on, and they check your hand position at each point. You have to sort of catch the ball and freeze and look at your hand position. And he said they can kind of clue you in to a guy's strength. Does he like that sort of fingers together, thumbs together position, or does he backhand the ball, which you see Perriman do a lot of times? Does he do it to the left? Does he do it to the right? Does he do it high? Does he do it low? And so he says, when you do that drill and you see how guys do it naturally, don't say anything to him. Don't instruct him before the drill. Just see what he does naturally. And then after the mm-hmm. drill, maybe have some comment. You can start to see patterns. And then when a guy starts to struggle with drops, you can go back to that and say, hey, you were backstopping that ball every time it comes out to you, the right side of your body. That's really not you know, the high, highest percentage technique that you want to use. Let's try to work on that other technique. So I think there definitely is something to sort of a, a dominant side in the technique he uses um, on that side. All right. I, I'm thinking back to a ball he tried to catch in stride, and it doesn't mean this is the, the one, the only, but the, the interception against Tennessee where he just got hammered when he was looking back over his left shoulder. I think Bayard came and got the interception. I don't remember who hit him on the play. Uh, but that was one where he, he appeared to be ready to catch that ball and run in stride. It just didn't quite work out for him. Um, yeah, and I – I, I, I tweeted a couple of gifts about that play just recently. I did it back during the game, and I did it recently because it kind of came up again. Uh, I won't get super deep now because I know, you know we, we have to kind of stick to, to time, but I actually think Macklin sort of made that play a lot tougher than it had to be because he was running – he was lined up inside Brashad and was running a, a route kind of bending towards the middle of the field, and he doesn't take that route at a sharp enough angle across the field. He actually stays pretty um, up the field. And his cornerback never has to move. The guy defending um, Macklin never has to move out of the middle of the field. And so he's able to turn around, get his eyes on the ball, and make a play on a route that's not even his route to defend. Now, give him credit. That's a great awareness play. But I uh, compared it to a route that they ran in 2016 with Steve Smith as the inside receiver and Mike Wallace. It was in the first game of the year against Buffalo where Mike Wallace catches his long touchdown on like a post route. Steve takes his route all the way across the middle of the field into the opposite numbers, pulling those defenders out of the middle of the field. So they have no chance to react to a ball that's coming in behind them. So it's a little bit of a subjective thing, but, you know, that, that's something that I, I have pointed out on that one in particular. If you're running in stride to catch a ball that's laid out in front of you, because I heard some people say, well, he needs to go up and attack that ball. You have no reason to think you need to go up and attack that ball if it's laid out in front of you and you're not anticipating another defender. You beat your defender the design of the play is for no other defender to be there. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if I totally buy into that. Well, he should have went up and got it because he didn't anticipate anybody else being there. Mm-hmm. Outstanding stuff, Michael. Uh, once again, you can follow you on Twitter. At Abukari, A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Okay. And do you have postings or writings anywhere that are currently listed? Do you do most of your, most of your interaction with the fans is on Twitter? Most of it is on Twitter. I, I did an article a few months ago on Russell Street Report on John Brown um, right after the signing there. Uh, I'm also doing some freelance work for uh, Purple Rain. Actually, I haven't posted anything yet, uh, but I've agreed to kind of do some stuff for them uh, uh, this season, too. So um, you can check out either one of those. And uh, I don't have a set column or, or article or anything, but I'll try to get some stuff out. Uh, probably rash it up more once the season starts. Okay, sounds great, Michael. We got one more question for you. Is somebody else who's in you know a similar position and they want to start doing some analysis? What would you recommend? How would you recommend they get started in the process? Well, I can tell you what I did, and and um, 
pretty much self-taught up to this point. Uh, as of this Monday, I am uh, a ripe three-day veteran of the Scouting Academy. Uh, I just started doing that. It's a, a program that Dan Hatman and some former NFL executives and coaches uh, created to sort of help train people to be NFL scouts. Uh, so I just started that because what I found with the self-teaching is you can buy books, you can listen to coaching clinics, you can read articles written by other people. But at a certain point, if you don't really understand what you're watching, you can be going down the wrong path. So in like terms Bouchard of the film, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, if you don't if you don't understand what you're seeing in the ball going to you, you can certainly go down the wrong path. Um, so uh, it, it, particularly with the film analysis analysis part of it, you know, you really do need uh, an experienced teacher to kind of tell you what you're looking at and what you should be looking for. Um, you could probably give people a ton more advice in the analytical side of getting started in that that I ever could. But um, just from the film analysis standpoint, um, if you want to start the way I did, there's tons of good stuff out there on YouTube, coaching clinics, um, all kinds of, of, of articles on the Internet that you can read. Uh, I've got a library full of football related books uh, from coaches and stuff like that. So you can certainly get started that way if, uh, if you're inclined to do that. Okay, outstanding stuff, Michael. We really appreciate you being on the show, and uh, we'll try and have you back again as a guest. This was really great. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Finally, we don't have to talk about Perriman for a little bit. Uh, next, we get to talk with Ed Lop. I'm guessing, I'm, I'm assuming I pronounced that right. You know, you guys know I get names wrong all the time. But Ken, this one surprised me because here we're going to talk about the Ravens and Madden. And I've played a little bit of Madden, but. Um, the Ravens aren't very good on there. So, Ed, how are you doing? Life's good. That's a statement around here, right, guys? That's good. That's a, picking up on the lingo right away. So, uh, yes, Ed, we, we've uh, I, I have played absolutely zero Madden Lifetime, which I'm ashamed to admit, but I'm in that age group where I probably missed it on the front end, meaning I'm too old for the game. Uh, Josh has got no excuse for not playing a lot of Madden, given his age. But uh, pretty much all NFL players play a fair amount of it, from what I hear. I would hope so. <laughs> all right. So anyway, um, we're going we're gonna to get some entertainment here. Now, Ed, you, you have a uh, fairly semi-professional background with Madden. Is that correct? I wouldn't even call it that. I mean, it's just playing around with a bunch of friends, coworkers, that sort of thing. Uh, but we've done, like, online leagues with even random people from – different states, that sort of thing. I've you know, even managed one, been you know, the commissioner of one. 32 teams, 32 users. Uh, it gets pretty intense out there. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, you mentioned there was a recent Madden championship, world championship for $100,000. And who are the types of people who tend to do extremely well at that? Because I know who dominates the gaming world in general. So who, who dominates the Madden world? Uh, people who don't work 40 hours a week. <laughs> see that's All what right. takes me out that's why i'm no good at madden <laughs> yeah so future college dropouts people are 20 years old nothing better to do etc well yeah that's, that's the common theme yeah we get it but i mean honestly these kids they, they devote a lot of time they have like dedicated practices and things like that i mean they must spend at least between five and you know 12 hours a day just not even just playing the game more so just running the same sets of formations, packages, trying to get, you know, the upper edge on whoever they're facing in the next, you know, let's say, season, whatever it is. 
All right. So interesting background on Madden. Let's talk a little bit about what your process was in these terms. So I, I, I saw the data you collected. It's extremely impressive on a per play basis. But take us through what your what your steps were in, in building this. Okay, so I went through a a Ravens real game, which was against the Texans last year in Week 12. It was a Monday night game. So we got a primetime game with um, Mr. Spider 2 Wabanana at the helm, John Gruden. He was calling the shots. Then I took a game of, let's say, that game and related it to, well, what could you have called in Madden if you were playing as the Ravens for that specific game? So it's the real game, and what would the Madden equivalent be? Every single play on offense only, not on defense, just the offense. If you're running morning leg, could you have called the game in Madden entirely? Okay, so let's let's just repeat that because I'm, sound quality, unfortunately, is not great on this episode. We got a, we got an issue with the with the connection, but you're trying to map every single real play that occurred in the in the Monday night game to the individual possible Madden calls that are available to the Baltimore Ravens, maybe to all teams, but to the Baltimore Ravens for sure, uh, in the game. And and then wasn't there also one additional variant by receiver that you can you can designate a route difference? Yes. Uh, every every Madden since I don't know how long has had the the option to like call audibles and hot routes. So if the play wasn't in the the playbook, maybe you could call let's say you know, then why on that ghost streak? Okay, well, if you could do that, would the play have actually been available only by just, you know, mixing up that route? Okay, and what were your conclusions in terms of the percentage of plays that were available or that, that were op- or, uh, uh, customizable? Uh, in terms of the default plays, about a third of them actually were in Madden, which, I, to be honest, that's a pretty reasonable number. I was kind of shocked by that. I would think it wouldn't have been, let's say, so basic. I'll let you decide if that's a good or a bad thing. But then if you factored in, well, if you could say, maybe we send this guy on a dig route or a slant, that sort of thing, or any combination of such, actually 28 of the 65 plays the Ravens ran were Madden plays by the book. That, that's funny because that takes us back to the beginning of this episode when we were talking with Marcus and his big thing with the when he studied film of the uh, Ravens offense was how archaic and plain and bland it was and old style, which is exactly what you're now repeating to us is it's so uh, basic style that it's been in Madden for 15 years. Yes, you can certainly argue that. All or right, outstanding. Good at their job. Okay, so when when Madden says it's in the game, are they are they being honest about things? Then is that a fair statement? Uh, you know, they're being mostly honest. Uh, you'd be surprised; a lot of this stuff actually is. Um, they can't get everything done, Pat. You know, uh, you could argue that the NFL draft process with all the questionable red flags characters have isn't in there. Uh, although that's simulated in some cases for like yeah, you know, computer seasons. But as far as teams. Call that sort of thing. They have the most of it, yeah. Okay, so if now getting back to the world of professional Madden players and the guys who are playing this full time and trying to derive advantage against each other, uh, do they follow any sort of a normal offensive technique, or are they do they have super aggressive techniques, or do they always work out of one formation that they're comfortable with, or or what? what how do they, how do their general offenses differ from 
the way NFL offenses are called. It's not an NFL offense, I'll tell you that much. Uh, I would equate this to something like how like Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech runs the triple option and has done it his entire life. Now, that's a little bit different because it's in college ball and it's the triple option. So when you, know, you have certain personnel, that sort of thing, you can just run it all day. But the game that I watched, which was the championship game for the 100 grand, those guys ran entirely shotgun and single back and worked just out of that. Nothing else. There was no variation. It was basically pick the two and run with it. Is, is there something about that formation which makes the customization or other things you can do at the last second in, out of a Madden playbook more deceptive or more easy? At least they've determined that that might be the case. Yes. Uh, blitz pickups are better. Uh, the personnel changes from having a tight end maybe instead of that three at two for a mismatch. Um, the bunch sets are different. Uh, putting in like your halfback, you can switch him over to block a little bit easier. It, just slide protection is ma- more manageable. A lot of things kind of help you out in terms of just getting the offensive edge or being on top of the other guy. Okay, so w- one thing else otherwise we mentioned when we were prepping for this was the ability for the defense to switch uh, relating to an offensive change in personnel. Does Madden have that? So if your offense yeah, changes personnel, does. you get different receivers. So And then the defense automatically gets to respond with the package that they want to put on the field. Yeah, they can run, the, let's say, a package to sub in and out as they choose, yeah. Okay. So one of my complaints, my bugaboos with Dean Pease over the last six years is that, in, for, particularly in his first five years with the team, he ran almost no dime, only 3% dime in his first five years. And the dime package is that a frequent substitution event then in your typical madden league where you're trying to uh really clamp down on passing downs no i wouldn't say frequent i would i would just tell you it's kind of a user by user basis there are some guys that they play only let's say three four four three and they switch to dime nickel on pass or some guys that play almost exclusively one or the other and then they just hop swap let's say Safety for safety based on like speed or you know coverage type. Okay, all right, very interesting stuff. Um, how about is there anything to be drawn? Can you learn anything about the Ravens' offense from looking at the Madden playbook? Uh, you can learn a little bit. You can certainly learn at least how most of their formations are set or uh, quote unquote stacked. One of the things I found that you couldn't necessarily pick up on though uh, was this. I want to call it a monster shotgun where uh, Marty was calling a four wide receiver set on, let's say, the right side of the field, and the left side of the field was just, let's say, a halfback. I believe he ran it about three times in this game against the Texans. Not available in Madden by default. Okay, that's very interesting. So four, four true receivers or tight ends on the right side, one running back only yeah. on the left side. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So let's get to the question that all – Ravens fans want to know, of course, is Joe Facco elite? Uh, elite in real life? That's debatable. Uh, but elite in Madden? Actually, he is. Okay, so t- tell us why that is, because we, we talked about this a little bit before, but I really want you to expand uh, on that. We we did. Um, the feature you're looking for is throw power in any quarterback in Madden, uh, because it's one of the hardest ones to boost other than speed. And, well, Joe Flacco isn't very fast, Um well, maybe he is compared to how some of us are at our age. But at the same time, it, it's the idea of having throw power to say, I can just throw the bomb across the field, doesn't matter where it is, fight the wind. You know what? That's a trait in Madden that's very highly valuable. 
and you can't just let's say work it up or buy into it. It's it's one of those it's the trait that we all know Joe has that we it drives us crazy that the Ravens aren't using that trait. I would tell you yes, I agree with that. All right, outstanding stuff, Ed. Now tell us where can where can folks follow you on Twitter? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, the name is Vengeance. It's shorthand though of the word vengeance. V e n g n c e. And then, if they wish, uh, I actually had some other, let's say, case studies on a self-proclaimed bracketologist. If you go to fcpbracket.blogspot.com, you'll see how I did in the March Madness, like prediction of the bracket, like Joe Lenardi did. As a matter of fact, I beat him this year. I want to put that out there. Very cool. Very cool. I will check that out. Uh, appreciate you Thank joining you. us on the show, Ed. Uh, uh, great stuff. Uh, we'd love to have you on again sometime. And one more question we want to ask is: is what would you, how would you advise a new analyst that's just starting out in terms of them starting their own study? And obviously, you've had some significant experience with this if you're doing bracketology, and then this very detailed piece you did here. Uh, do what gives you the biggest headache, and if people tell you, you're really good at it. <laughs> All right, very good. All right, thank you, Ed. Absolutely, thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. All right, there you go. A completely different episode than we normally do. Um, less of Ken and I, and instead we got to welcome these guests, Marcus, Michael, and Ed. So thank you to those guys. Make sure you're following them up on Twitter and uh, thanking them also to be part of this show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, wasn't it, to listen to this? I'm sure you enjoyed the Paramount and- uh, theme that ran through the show. You know, Ken, you surprised me. You brought on a guy to talk about gifts, a guy to talk about Paramin, and then a guy to talk about Madden. Um, nothing that I expected that we would cover ever. I thought we were even done with Paramin by this point on this show. So, uh, nice surprise, fun, different episode this week. Yeah, well, thanks a lot. We, we, we didn't really hit on the, what I think is the holy grail of football analysis, which is a good win probability model that's dynamic in nature. Hopefully we'll get to that at some future show, but uh, but that's great stuff, right. and I, I really appreciate our guests for being on here. And to recap the show, the offense is bland, and Perriman can't catch. <laughs> and Madden's a great game. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible XFi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.